Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Generation Anthropocene listeners. Michael Osborne here. We're going to do something a little bit different today on the show. For the last several months, I've been working on a new podcast called Famous and Gravy. It's a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. The idea is to go through a series of categories to sort of look at somebody who has died, whose story is complete, and you know, see what lessons we can learn from how they chose to live their life. Among other things that come up on this show is how central should activism be in terms of quality of life? How important is it to be of service overall? And what are some of the trade-offs that can come with that? And it's for that reason that I've chosen this episode where there's a dead celebrity whose name you'll recognize very soon, but whose whole life was really centered around service and activism. So if you enjoy this show, there's a lot more. You can find it at famousandgravy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are more Generation Anthropocene episodes in the works as we speak. So stay tuned to the feed. Thanks so much. And here is episode 12 of Famous and Gravy titled Emblem of Dignity. This person died in 2013 at age 95. Oh my God. For some reason, I thought of Aretha Franklin, but I'm pretty sure she died later than 2013, and I don't know if she was 95 years old. He was tall and slim. He was also somewhat vain. He wore impeccable suits. Oh God. Okay, so this is making me think it's someone rich. I'm really blanking, Mike. His given name translates colloquially as troublemaker. His given name, like I should know from a baby book. (laughs) Like if I looked up his name in a baby book, his troublemaker would be next to it. (laughs) The question most often asked about him was how, after all he'd been through, he could be so evidently free of spite. It can't be like the Dalai Lama or anything because they wouldn't be vain. They've forsaken all physical things. He shared a Nobel Peace Prize with his predecessor. Oh, okay. So it might, is it a scientist or a writer maybe? I'm trying to think of like glamorous scientists now and coming up very blank. There was so much activity at his vigil that President Obama paid homage, but decided not to intrude on the privacy of a dying man that he considered to be his hero. Someone that Obama considered his hero? Now I feel like it's like a monk-like, old, glamorous scientist who is also cool and like, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Liberal? Into politics? I don't know. I'm like so confused. What's so great is how close you are, but also how baffled you are. Yeah, in a way, like there's just, (laughs) you're just a few degrees off, but you're off the key. He was a symbol of the opposition to apartheid. Oh, Nelson Mandela. (laughs) Today's dead celebrity is Nelson Mandela. Okay. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and and 
with equal opportunity. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories examining a famous person's life. We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Nelson Mandela died 2013, age 95. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Uh, can I just say how nervous I am about doing Nelson fucking Mandela? This is going to be a hard one. Yeah. Okay. Nelson Mandela, who led the emancipation of South Africa from white minority rule and served as his country's first black president, becoming an international emblem of dignity and forbearance, died Thursday night. He was 95. Amit. I like emblem a lot. I like forbearance a lot. And I mean, dignity, we knew that would be in there. But emblem and forbearance. Those are great words. I didn't know what forbearance meant. I had to go to the dictionary with that one. Uh, and it says restraint and tolerance. Okay. It's grand. You know, it's like plucked from deep in the dictionary, and it's used very, very sparingly and very deliberately here. And it's yeah. a legacy kind of word. It's good. It's also one more than three barons. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, um, that's, that's true. Anyway, emblem. Yeah, emblem's good because we use symbol a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I like emblem because you can only bestow that upon a few, very, very few people. Yeah. So for somebody to be an emblem, you are saying that they are a jewel in a sort of way, but the same way the bald eagle or whatever is an emblem. It's bigger than a symbol. It's actually the symbol. Well, I want to ask something or bring up something about the obituary. Yeah. Most of the people we've done so far have been, like, entertainers. Mandela obviously was not known, like, as an entertainer. Um, it's not his reputation. But, but no. the New York Times obituaries have also, like, thrown in some witticisms. And this one, they, they didn't. Is that a gap? Should there have been something kind of clever? No, I'm just wondering, have we picked up on something? What do you mean? Entertainers, they throw in the little quirky oh. words and jabs. But the emblems, straight to the point. So that by having a quip or like a little witticism, as you called it, you're actually nodding to the nature of the fame of that person if they're in the entertainment industry broadly. Yeah, but this guy's too big to have the quip. Well, obviously. I mean, you can't make snide jokes about Mandela. Well, that was my question. I guess not. I mean, Mandela is revered, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think you'd have to find a, a kind of ambiguous international head of state and see how they treat it there. Yeah, and in, well, an imprisoned head of state also is difficult. Wait a sec, imprisoned. That was like my main, actually the only thing I could find wrong with this obituary. They, they didn't, didn't mention the imprisonment. It didn't mention the imprisonment. He was in prison for 27 years. That's such an enormous part of his story. Yeah. And that's kind of how we knew about him. And part of the reason you and I struggled about whether or not we should even think about doing Nelson Mandela on this show. Yeah. Shouldn't it have been in there? I would think so, but maybe there wasn't room. Maybe it was a space issue. I don't feel like there's a clause in there where you can get that in. Yeah. And they chose not to, which I don't know what to make of that. I think you have to know enough about the nature of his imprisonment for that to be okay in the first line of his obituary because it's a virtuous imprisonment. You know, he's a political prisoner. So, you know, maybe that's the part that takes too much work is you have to explain why he's in prison in the first place, in the first line of his obituary. But that's supposed to be the magicianship of these obituary writers. Yeah. That's that they can write an autobiography in one sentence. Exactly. So I, I would give this a nine, not quite a 10. This is a nine to me. There's so much I love. I love emblem. I love forbearance. I love dignity. First black president. Emancipation. The word emancipation in here is what his life stood for, right? Freedom. The one thing that takes it away from me is I kind of feel like I should have gotten this, like, 27 years, which is about a quarter of his life. I mean, more than that. Yeah. And that that feels like it's missing. Yeah, interesting. I was prepared to give it a nine until you brought up that point, so I'm going down one. You're going, going to go to eight. I'm going to go with an eight. Okay. Should we go on? Let's go on. All right. 
Category two, five things I love about you. This is where Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we ought to be talking about this person and what we love about them. If you would like to lead off, you can, but I have a lot. I don't, you just, you would. Did I guilt you? And you, entrapped me go first? Me, you entrapped me. <laughs> you go first then. You no, I don't. No. no, no, no. I'm going to be, I'm going to pass, gonna pass be, the potatoes back I'm going to you. have some forbearance here. Uh, okay. I went number one, gift for words. Mm. He was a member of royalty of a certain class, and right. you know the words gentleman, aristocrat, and all that. But he really was incredibly articulate and had like a writer's choice for words. When he spoke, if it was you know a line or an entire speech, it was just so poetic. Yeah, it made you want to listen, but it also stirred something. No matter what he was saying, if he was trying to instill peace in some small way or make a proclamation, he could just do it so wonderfully. I remember one clip that I watched just in the last couple of days. It was some of the effect of put down your knives, put down your guns and throw them in the ocean or yeah. something like that. And it was just beautiful. Take your guns, your knives, and your pandas and throw them into the sea. Yeah. I mean, he describes himself as not being a particularly strong orator, like speech giver, which I don't think is totally true. He does have a kind of dignity and aristocratic quality to him. But I also think that it's his writing, literally like pen to paper writing, as well as his spoken word writing. That's great. Uh, number two. Okay, let me say this. I want to just couch this. I found myself going to a lot of different character traits, some of which we've already talked about, dignity, open-mindedness, principle. And I was trying to come up with like a catch-all phrase for all of it. And I wrote down pragmatic idealist. Okay. And I, You made that up or you read that somewhere? No, I wrote that down. Okay. I, I think he is pragmatic. I think he is a political beast. And I think that there are choice moments throughout his life and his career where he chooses to compromise with people. But he also retains idealism. He's also hopeful. When he went to prison, he says in his autobiography, I never thought I was going to be in prison the rest of my life. I just never believed that. I think he also had a gift for looking at the humanity and people he disagreed with and even his oppressors, whites and apartheid South Africa. I also think he's a lifelong learner. You know, he reads a lot and he's, he's a lawyer. He's a really like curious guy. And all of that to me is sort of captured in this term pragmatic idealist. I really like the idea that you believe the world can be better, but you also can chart a pathway to a better world. Because I meet a lot of naive idealists. I meet a lot of cynical pragmatists. I'm not sure I meet enough pragmatic idealists. That's good. Thanks. Yeah. So he was a lawyer. You said that's part of the pragmatic part. So was Gandhi. Yeah. Right? What What to make of that? Law is powerful. I had a buddy, you know this friend, who is a lawyer. He has a very high opinion of himself, and it's <laughs> very misguided. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> he was one of these nerds who got super into being in law school. He said, you know what's so great about law school? He said, I'm going to work for a Fortune 1000 company <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Uh, so- he said, you know, what's great about law school is that you learn all the rules that everybody's living by that you had no idea existed. All these little rules that are written down somewhere that have the weight of government behind them, like they exist out there and you don't even realize that you live underneath and around those rules. So I think there's a reason lawyers go on to be politicians. But to be the most or one of the most Three most yeah. influential political activists of the 20th century. Yeah. So you're saying that you do, they have such an understanding of the constrictions that law and history place upon people. Yeah, well, who else goes on that list besides Gandhi and Mandela in the 21st century? I think you'd probably— MLK. Play, yeah, MLK. So with there, it's God. It's a religious understanding. But I think that, to me, seems like the pathway to— societal transformation if you're going to be that kind of leader. Law or God? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is this is what you're saying to our youth these days? If they're making that decision their senior year in college? Yeah. I don't know that that's bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you really want to change the world, you've got to have some training and, and some language and you're carrying, you know, the weight of those institutions into your passion for reform. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think some of my closest friends, if I look at like my 
five closest friends, maybe three of them are lawyers. Yeah. And I think they all went in with that. Yeah. That, that thirst. I, yeah, that right. thirst. And they, and they lose the idealism. I mean, that's the thing about 98% of lawyers, if not more. I just substitute the word lawyers for people. Idealism fades. Idealism fades. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about Nelson Mandela today. Idealism did not fade. Yeah. So if my number two is pragmatic idealist, then part of, I think, what's in there for me is the, which I think you just put words to, is the fact that his idealism retained through his 95 years on planet Earth. Which is remarkable. So I'm going to build on pragmatic for number three. All right. And this is that he lived modestly. So even when he's president and post-presidency and all, he lived very modestly in what was more or less a neighborhood house. And this is a guy who is, for a period in the 90s, possibly the most renowned person in planet Earth. Yeah. He is going to meeting every single heads of state. He has Michael Jackson traveling all the way to South Africa just to meet him for a few moments. But he lived not in palatial quarters. So what do you love about that? Contrast. That he represented something more, but also like the house didn't need to be too big. The lawn doesn't need to be too manicured. It's not only that, but it's the absence of the physical moat. When you are that big and that powerful and that renowned, I mean, you also need your space. Like, there is a reason people live in guarded and gated palaces. Right. And he was just a little more out there. So not only was it in contrast, but it's being, I don't know, of the people, with the people. Yeah. Number four. All right. I wrote flirtations with acting uh, because I wanted to get two things in here. One, I learned that he played in a play in college, John Wilkes Booth, in a play about Abraham Lincoln's life. And I love the irony of that. He also had a cameo in Spike Lee's Malcolm X. At the very end, there's a, you know, all these school children standing up saying, I am Malcolm X, I am Malcolm X. And uh, it's very powerful. And then it cuts to Nelson Mandela playing a school teacher in 1992, which is when this movie came out. So that's before he's president, but after he's been released from prison. I think he kind of wanted to be on the silver screen. And uh, so flirtations with acting was how I shoehorned in these two little bits of trivia. Interesting. And you're talking about like 50 years apart flirtations with acting. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Can I take the Go last on. one? Yeah. All right. This is the one I most want to talk about, I think. His charisma. He's described as a charismatic leader. The reason I wanted to talk about this with you is it's a nature-nurture question for me. Have you been in the room with like incredibly charismatic people who seem to have a magnetic quality, like the lion in the room type? Yes. My hunch is that often that quality is God-given. But there's also a part of me that wants to believe you can kind of Zen master your way to being a charismatic individual. Nelson Mandela obtains charisma, and maybe he's born with charisma. He certainly seems to be kind of born with charisma. But I guess the question I got for you is, do you think charisma can be taught or obtained if you're not necessarily born with it? Have you ever seen that in anybody? I don't think I've seen the entire arc of somebody to be able to answer that properly. Yeah. But no, I don't think it can be 100% taught. Yeah. It can be developed more, but it can't come from out of nowhere. Do you think leadership can be taught? Yeah. So what's the difference? Because a charismatic leader is somebody who has that magnetic quality and uses it to be the lion in the room, to guide conversations a certain direction or group decisions in a certain way. Most politicians have some element of yeah, so, so leadership can be taught. Excellent leadership cannot. If excellent leadership requires leadership plus charisma plus X, no, it can't all be taught. But you can still be an effective leader, maybe not an excellent one. When I was in grad school, you know, there was leadership classes or whatnot, but there was one that stuck with me, and it was like two indelible characteristics of leaders. And they're talking about business leaders. Mm -hmm. And this particular study, what they found to be the two most important ones were humility and fierce resolve, which both combined kind of have charisma to it, right? Yeah. Humility is definitely, that's something that goes with being charismatic. It's knowing what you don't have and being okay with it. And fierce resolve. Or knowing resolve. what you don't know. Yeah. And, and fierce resolve is what, that's what you said. That's knowing in Mandela's case that I won't be in prison the rest of my life, yeah. even though I've been handed a life sentence. You are going to march in that direction no matter how heavy the winds are in your face or in your si at your side. 
Those things do seem to sum up to charisma. Category two, Malkovich Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which a person takes a portal into John Malkovich's mind where they can have a front row seat to John Malkovich's experiences. The point is to imagine what it might be like to be this person. Amit, your Malkovich Malkovich moment for Nelson Mandela. I struggled with this one because there one, there's a lot. So the one that I, I went with is, you know, in this period of the 50s when he's a bit like on the run. Yeah, right? the Black Pimpernel period. Yeah, so he goes of, yeah. he goes to Ethiopia, I think, for a conference and sneaks out of the country. Well, and he also goes to get military training at that point. Well, correct. So that's what he does is he's going around North Africa and, and other parts of Africa and he's meeting these leaders of... Egypt and Tunisia and stuff like that. Right. And I think it was the president of Tunisia gave him 5,000 pounds for weaponry. Yes. That does not seem like real life. Like it doesn't, I can't imagine anyone outside of a Bond movie would ever experience that. Like here's a whole bunch of money for the guns. Yeah. Yeah. Go fight for freedom. Yeah. Well, and up to that point, I mean, he had been advocating nonviolence as a tactic. This is right when he breaks from that and says, we have no other choice. Yeah. Oh, wow. What I a moment that, that would be. And you can see the future of the earth possibly changing yeah. before your eyes for what this kind of means. It's a good one, Amit. It's a good one. Want to hear my mug? I do. Moment? Yeah. Like you, I struggled because there are so many. In his autobiography, which, by the way, I read 650 pages, because, like, when else am I going to read this? And I kind of need to read this, but it's actually a page-turner. I'd recommend the book. It's great. Got it at Half Price Books. All right, so I got to set this up a little bit. He's in prison for 27 years, but there's a point in time where he decides to make a move and say, I'm going to uh, initiate negotiations with the apartheid regime. And he sort of begins to make overtures. There's a sort of phase where things are proceeding and it becomes clear at some stage that his release from prison is going to be inevitable. But he's still imprisoned and he doesn't even want to be out of prison until certain concessions are met as part of these negotiations. So they're moving him around and they move him to a, a prison called Victor Verster, but it's nicer. It has accommodations. He describes there being a swimming pool there, a modest bed. He says in the autobiography, I never forgot I was in a gilded cage, but it's, it's nicer. The prison also assigns to him a cook, and occasionally this cook will leave him dinner to be reheated in a microwave. This is 1988, and he has this line in his autobiography where he said, this is the first time I ever saw that device. It's 1988, and he sees a microwave for the first time, and he's reheating his own dinner. I don't know if you remember when microwaves came about. It was like- Yeah, I've got, I remember when we got one. Yeah, it's like Star Trek. You know, it was amazing that this- device would reheat your dinner like that. Here's why I chose it as a Malkovich moment. One, there is this sort of, my God, society has advanced so far that this transformative technology, there's microwaves here now. And he's been in prison since 1960s, right? I mean, this has been near the end of his 27 years. The other piece of it, though, for me, that makes it a Malkovich moment is that his home life, which we'll get into in a minute, wasn't great. He was never at home as a father and as a husband, and he's very forthcoming about all of that. The microwave somehow symbolizes a change in home life. You know, the modern individual who just needs to press a couple buttons to have a hot dinner. Interesting. It's very Encino Man, but I like, I, I get your, I get the different importance you're placing on it. Polly Shore's Encino Man? Polly Shore's Encino Man. I but Polly Shore was not the Encino Man. I think Brendan Fraser was. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I never actually sat down and watched that movie. I shouldn't, right? Uh, oh, absolutely you should. Oh, really? Yeah, he gets unearthed, I think, from like Polly Shore's backyard. Yeah. Wait, he, it's, it's like frozen, this is like yeah. frozen caveman lawyer thing? I mean, he's yeah, not a lawyer, it's, it's exactly that, but he gets out, but he has to learn how to use like all these devices. You know, wouldn't it be weird to be Nelson Mandela and standing in front of a microwave in the late 80s and just kind of thinking about it all? Absolutely. I, I, I want to have the moment of technological awe, but also... I don't know. Also be thinking about what else I missed. Yeah. Should we move on? Yes. Category four. Marriages. How many? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Holy, holy. This is a big one for him. It is. It's complicated. So first marriage, uh, I'm just going to go with first names because I'm going to mess up the African last names if I even give it a shot. First marriage, Evelyn. Nelson Mandela was age 26. She's four years younger than him. They were divorced in 1958. So he is 38 when he's divorced. Yes. And she accused him of infidelity. Correct. Okay. 
second wife, Winnie, who's very prominent, they get married in 1958. Nelson is 40 years old. They're together during the entirety of his prison sentence. They are divorced when he's 78 in 1996, and there's an 18-year difference in age. Oh, so she was only 22? Yes. Really? Okay. She's very young. Interesting. And I think it's notable that I think he married Winnie only six months after the divorce from Evelyn. That's correct. And then I think you say Grasa, G-R-A-C with a little curly Q thing on the C. Is that yeah, a, I don't know. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Grasa. They got married when Nelson was 80 in 1998, and they were together until his death for on, 15 years. On the day he turned 80, I believe. I think that's correct. And she, a uh, bit of trivia, had been the former first lady of Mozambique. So this was the second head of state she had married. Her previous husband passed away. Another thing worth mentioning here is that before he married Evelyn, he was supposed to be part of an arranged marriage, and he ran away from his—wasn't his father. His father died at a young age, but he—what's the term I'm looking for? Benefactor, maybe? So he actually uh, skipped out of a marriage at a very young age because he didn't want that life. He made a Vanderbeek decision early on. Yeah. A lot of kids, a lot of them died young. One died while he was in prison, I believe. One died while he was in prison. He had a uh, nine-month-old die. It was So there was four children with Evelyn. One died at nine months. One died of age at 2005 at age 55. There's only one living child from the first marriage. And then— Did you say she died of AIDS or age? He, he died of AIDS. He died of AIDS. Okay. Yeah, 2005. His, his second son. And his older son died at age 24 in a car accident while he's in prison. He had— Two daughters with Winnie, one of whom is alive, another who died in 2020 at age 60. And then he had a stepdaughter who's still with us. So what to make of all this? He is very clear that he made a decision. And he didn't even realize he made a decision, but it became clear as time went on that he could not do both things. That he could not be a freedom fighter and the head of a resistance to apartheid and be a father. and husband. It does sound like the third marriage was maybe the happiest. He's 80 and he's out of prison. Well, what's your point? You've made peace with a lot of things and you're pretty certain you're not going back to prison. Yeah. I mean, what to make of all this? That there's a choice. Or there maybe for a man like him, there never was a choice. It's a troubled home life, but it's also a troubled fucking country. And he was the man of the moment eventually. I don't know what to make of it. I don't think, I don't, I, honestly, this doesn't seem to hold up to the usual kind of famous and gravy criteria of let's talk about their marriages and weigh this shit out. Yeah. More than anything, it highlights what his life was all about, and especially the fact that he has self-awareness around the fact that, like, I, I went through a lot of marriages, and he, he talks about falling in love with a lot of different women at a young age. I mean, I, I think he had charisma. He was attractive. He was very attractive. If you look at, like, the younger pictures of him. He's bulky, too, right? Yeah. He's, like, he kind of jacked. He was a boxer. boxer. Yeah. He looked good. I, I, I actually was, like, when I saw the younger pictures of him, I'm like, do I have the right guy? I mean, prison made him skinnier. Yeah. And age, I guess. But, but you are right. This doesn't—it's not the usual famous and gravy question about, was your love life continuous? Or is it? I mean, you know, the people we have on this show, the dead celebrities we talk about, we look at their life decisions, and some of them are famous because they threw themselves into their careers. Some of them are singers, some of them are authors, some of them are politicians. I mean, he's a freedom fighter, right? And so I can, I, I have more peace with his decision to focus on career, but is it so different? I don't know. So are you insinuating at all that if you are somebody who is so important of an activist and so involved that this is beyond a job, right? You're on the run for a good bit of it. When he goes on the run is the moment he makes that. He's clear on that, by the way. Clear on what? Well, so— oh, that he's leaving behind his children. And yeah, it's when he goes on the run and when he says we need to back away from this nonviolent stance, that's the moment in his autobiography where he realizes that this comes at the cost of me being a family man. And I should say, he enjoys being a family man, or at least says to. He's like, I like the pleasures of domesticity. Look, you have to have men and women like this to change the world. We need them. If what we're after here is desirability— this is a tough one. Here's what I want to do. I want to pause on all this because I got something I want to read you in a later category that I think will speak to this and I think we'll come back to it. Okay. Is that okay? That's okay. 
So what, what's, what's the conclusion on the— I don't think there is a conclusion. I think the only thing I want to say at this point, and I do want to return to this question later, is that you cannot have the life he had without having sacrifices at home, and that's clear. Yeah. All right. Category five. Net worth. You got this? Yeah. It was just north of $4 million. Is that what you saw? Oh, interesting. I found $1 million. Uh, I believe four million. I think four million was what? Well, yeah, the entire estate, and that that was being disputed over. Yes, much of it earned after he's out of prison. His book is a bestseller, his autobiography, and and then I think speaking engagements was the other source the, of revenue. And a lot of the gifts that he's given, you know, like the the Nobel Peace Prize and various medals of freedom and all, which I know we have a category for. Right. Some of those I think do come with cash. It's funny because you look at how big of a role he played. In this country and in, not sorry, not in this country, but. Yes, obviously he transformed South Africa, but it, I think South Africa in so many ways, part of the reason it captures the American imagination is the similarities, especially black and white racial tension and racial yeah. relations. That's not unique to South Africa, but it's on display there in a way that resembles America at times. Yeah, but I think the funny thing is just is kind of the monetization of it. Four million is pretty small. It is. Right, and to... Yeah, what the fuck are we supposed to make of this number? This is, is this what you're getting at? Yeah. So we've used words like hero and we've used emblem. Emblem, you know, top three civil rights figures of the entire 20th century. And he only walks away with four million? It's obviously not what got him out of bed in the morning. I, I, I'm actually really at peace with that number. I think any more than that. I mean, the thing is, if he has too much money, there is such a thing as too much money and too big a house for Nelson Mandela, isn't there? No, but it can all go into his foundation. I sure. guess that doesn't count in, in his net worth. Right. And I think that's where it went. I mean, I do think that he was charitable, <laughs> to say the least. I don't know. I guess some part of me wants, like, Ed McMahon to show up and be like, you ended apartheid. Here's $100 million. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. But I also think that, especially in the post-presidency years, he's not—I don't want to say taken care of, but, you know, like, doesn't want— for material, you know, for, for chandeliers. He does like those shirts. He does like he those does shirts. He does like very well-crafted yeah, shirts. Yeah, tidy man. Yeah, so I guess I guess four million is fine. All I'm pointing out is that you are a pivotal figure in changing the world, one of the most important figures in a century, and four million is what you show for it. You, you found a software company and you're in the billions. Well, fair enough. But you used the word humble earlier, and I feel like it is important, given the, the emblem, the symbol that he is, that he has to remain humble. That's what I mean. Like, the house could be too much. Ed McMahon showing up with $100 million, I, I'm sorry, I can't take that because I can't take away how important what my legacy and symbolism means to so many people. Thanks, Ed. I'm going to put it all on the foundation. Yeah, but you're still getting it. Yeah. I yeah, I think we just don't have the measure of what that was in the net worth question. Yeah. And easily obtainable information. Category six? Yep. Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hall of Fame? I'm amending this to be Hall of Fame. We've changed it. It was previously Walk of Fame. Yeah, that's right. But now we've broadened it to include all any, halls. All halls of all fames. It's a measure of a person's fame. Uh, we include both guest appearances on Saturday Night Live or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations or even references. So, where do you want to start? There here? was quite a few SNLs. There are quite a few SNLs. Tim Meadows did one. There was also like a subtle reference at his funeral. They did a skit about oh, what was it? It was like Obama is doing it, but like Nelson Mandela's. Yes, I saw this impersonating. Or sorry, is is it's the Obama impersonator who makes it not uh, Nelson Mandela. Correct. So Obama is given like a eulogy or something like that. Yeah, and I forget their, who did the impersonation here. But yeah, I think there's no question he's famous enough to show up on Saturday Night Live. Yes. And Simpsons. Yeah. The, the Simpsons reference, lots of mentions. Again, uh, he never did do a voice on The Simpsons, unfortunately. Lots, do you know one of the mentions? Like, well, what was the context? I couldn't, not any of the episodes I recognized. There was one, I, I'm not even sure if this is an episode. I think there's a Simpsons comic book. So I, I find all of this on the Simpsons wiki. And there's a Simpsons comic book where Nelson, the bully in third grade, uh, goes to plays Nelson Mandela in a costume party. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, that was all I found. So this is what I was looking up earlier today when we were talking. So I really wanted this to be Saturday Night Live, but it wasn't. So actually, I think this is one of my first memories of hearing Nelson Mandela. KRS-One, the rapper. Do you know who he is? Yeah. Of Boogie Down Productions? Yeah. So I remember seeing him perform 
on a show which I thought was Saturday Night Live. This must have been the year Nelson Mandela was freed. And the refrain in the song that he was singing was, Mandela's not free, he can't even vote in his own country. Mandela's not free, Mandela's not free, he can't even vote in his own country. Mandela's not free, Mandela's not free, now listen to the lyrics and the pure reality. And to me, like, my memory of it was that was happening, like, on Saturday Night Live, (laughs) but I think it actually was the Arsenio Hall show. I really wanted it to be Saturday Night Live, or we changed this category to be Simpsons SNL Hall of Fame. We did say all halls. Simpsons SNL all halls. All halls. Including Arsenio. Including Arsenio. Ding. Can we just end end the show right now? Absolutely. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I don't know if we talk about halls of fame, but there is like Seemingly no award from any country that he did not receive. Yeah. You know, Presidential Medal of Freedom. Presidential Medal of Freedom, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he got from India, from Pakistan, from everywhere you could imagine. Okay, Category 7, over-under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for when someone was born and whether or not they beat the house odds, and as a measure of grace, how gracefully. I found something interesting on this. So I thought, well, okay, I'm not sure if life expectancy— in South Africa. I wanted it to be specific to South Africa. So I looked up life expectancy for a male in South Africa, and it took me to a link where there's a chart that shows that in 1915, 34.7, 1920, 30.18. There's a huge dip because of the pandemic, the Spanish flu. In 1918. So, ne- never heard of it. What's a pandemic? It's a thing. It's, it's this thing where everybody gets sick and uh, everybody works from home. So anyway, it didn't have 1918. That's the year he's born. Somewhere between 34.7 and 30.18. And our guy lived to? 95. Yes. I think this is a new record for crushing the house odds. Oh, yeah. Tripled it. More Tw- than tripled it. And near 30 years in prison. Yeah. And escaped death God knows how many times in the pre-prison years. And looked good. Like, he looked good in his 70s and 80s. He carried that charisma. Yeah. I'm just, you know, great smile, like good shirts, tall. Yeah. I mean, he's marrying a 50-year-old at age 80. Yeah. Right? He's- Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, but he's, um, are you calling out the age inappropriateness of his No, I'm not. I'm not. I think I was making the wrong point. I was insinuating he was still like physically desirable. Yes. I think because he held himself well. This is what charisma gives you. Yeah. 95 years. Yeah. Remarkable for anybody. Yes. For somebody born in 1918 in South Africa, it is multiple standard deviations away. Yeah. But I think what we're also talking about here is, I mean, there's there's just something built genetically into this man to have the resolve that we talked about, the charisma, but even just the physical body endurance to endure 27 years of prison and then live to 95. Like just physically, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, this is not just a feat of luck. Yeah. Like this is, you have to believe in chosen ones to some extent, given just these things. Well, I think that's certainly the mythology of the man, which I think he's quick to dispute, but I think it is kind of there. So, yeah. Michael, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, If you could take today's dead celebrity to any retail store, what would it be? Ooh. I think I would take him to Half Price Books, Ahmed. Half Price Books? Half Price Books, absolutely. Explain yourself, sir. Well, I th- I love shopping for books with people. Shopping for books is always stimulates interesting conversation, right? You browse the different aisles and you see, you know, different topics come to mind. Have you ever read this author? Have you ever read that book? It's just a good place to talk and wander and discover. So, yeah, absolutely. Half Price Books is an awesome venue to connect with people, to discover books that you've long forgotten about or that you haven't read, and it's all a great price. And you know what? Half Price Books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are over 120 stores, and you can find out more at hpb.com. Here's where we get to the part where we really are trying to do a little bit more to imagine what it would be like to be this person. Category eight, man in the mirror. Did he like his reflection? Given the conversation we just had, I think this is a quick yes. I disagree. So he did not expect that. Yeah. Did not expect that. He, he did like, 
I think, the way he looked. Yes. He was known for changing clothes, changing shirts many times a day. Because he was presenting for the world here? Hear me out. Maybe he was an optimizer. Mm. Like, he always wants to look his best. He's never fully satisfied with this particular outfit and how it looks on him. Are you an optimizer? Are you an optimizer? I was, no, not in that sense, but I think I do look in the mirror and hold on just a little too long. Yeah. I'm an um, optimizer. I mean, I, I definitely will put on a shirt and be like, this one's not doing it for me right now. Yeah. So and I think, I if, but off. if you're that much of an optimizer, you never look in the mirror and be like, perfect. But isn't it and also a little away. bit about because I, I, I'm presenting for the world here and I need to look a certain way because he, there comes a point in Nelson Mandela's life where he's conscious of his symbolism. So I, I'm going to give him a little bit more room to change his shirt every 10 minutes. And, you know, he's looking <laughs> at his every 10 minutes. So here's, here's my argument is he, he lived modestly yeah. in modest accommodations. He did not amass a giant fortune. His look and his presence is what he had. And he loved his shirts. He changed them constantly. So he could never just look in the mirror, give a thumbs up, say, I'm good, turn around, and go address the UN or whatever he was doing. <laughs> so I'm saying he had to hold on a little long. So I am sticking head, head with down my, to the rally. I am sticking with my no just because it was so important to him. And when it's so important to you, you're never fully satisfied with it. It's a good case. I'm sticking with my guess. We can agree to disagree. Uh, we absolutely agree to disagree. All right. Outgoing message. I said yes, because I think he's a strong orator. Were you afraid that I was going to have Fucking a strong a. argument? <laughs> yeah. this is, um, I should have I I, introduced yeah, I this. I said yes. Okay, We talked about it in things I love about you, but just tremendous voice and choice of words. Yeah. I really thought you were going to say no, and here's why. And I, would, I just wasn't ready for it. I'm not sure how much I can handle. All right. Category 10. Regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. This is where I had wanted to return to this conversation about a choice between home life or not. Okay. This is public, but can I'm going to read you something from the autobiography. Okay. Bear with me. This is towards the end where he's really wrestling with the fact that he's had to make choices about the home life. And he says, in life, every man has twin obligations— Obligations to his family, to his parents, to his wife and children. And he has an obligation to his people, his community, his country. In a civil and humane society, each man is able to fulfill these obligations according to his own inclinations and abilities. But in a country like South Africa, it was almost impossible for a man of my birth and color to fulfill both of those obligations. South Africa, a man of color who attempted to live as a human being, was punished and isolated. And man was tried to fulfill his duty to his people, was inevitably ripped from his family and his home, and was forced to live a life apart, a twilight existence of secrecy and rebellion. I did not in the beginning choose to place my people above my family, but in attempting to serve my people, I found that I was prevented from fulfilling my obligations as a son, a brother, a father, and a husband. In that way, my commitment to my people and to the millions of South Africans I would never know or meet was at the expense of the people I knew best and loved most. It was as simple and yet as incomprehensible as the moment a small child asks her father, why can you not be with us? And the father must utter the terrible words, there are other children like you, a great many of them. And then one's voice trails off. Wow. Good, isn't it? Yeah. He didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice. So but it still aided him. I don't even know if it's a regret. I think it's pain. I think he wishes it could have been different, but I don't think he would but have what we're it. talking about is possibly a sheer impossibility. I think that's right. Yeah. I think it's not a regret. Similarly, I think he would have the same attitude around nonviolence. I don't, that he had no choice. That he had no choice. That, that the violence of the apartheid regime and the, what, was, what the experience of oppression was— and he knew innocents would die. Civilians would die. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, and, and unfortunately, factually, shit did not change yeah. until this excessive violence. So I'm actually not sure if he has any public regrets. What do you think? It's really tough on both of those things. If there's one subtle one, I think, is that he was aligned with some other world leaders that proved to be very troublesome. Yeah, Suharto is one, I think. And, uh, Castro. Yeah. And, uh, Gaddafi. Uh, yes. 
I, I wonder if that's not a little just real politique, though. Like he, you know, was aligned with them because he needed to fund the army somewhere. I don't know. I didn't dig into it enough. And I don't doubt that there's a whole like level down of micro policy decisions that as the president and as the leader of the movement, he's like, well, I made this compromise here. Was that definitely a good call? I don't know. And some of these are, are certainly knowable if you do a deep enough biography. We're not historians or biographers. So we're, I think we're really talking about the big ones. Yeah. Do you think he laid at night awake thinking I shouldn't have partnered up with Castro or, or anybody else? No, I don't think so. I don't either. I don't think that there's room for regret, at least not public ones. Yeah. But I got to wonder if you're in the middle of your prison sentence. You actually don't know when the prison sentence ends, but let's say you're 20 years in. Yeah. How much do you regret the whole thing, the whole life you chose? Because you're like, God damn, I've been in prison 20 years, you know, he had this resolve inside of him that he knew it was going to turn. Or that's what he says in his autobiography. Maybe in his super private moments, you're wondering if maybe there's like a, what if this doesn't work out the way I want it to? How do you not have that regret? Is that what you're talking or about? Or what if I was just a lawyer and I wouldn't be in prison? You know, because you know, he doesn't know how it's going to end. Of course. At that point. Like, it sounds very justified now to serve a 30-year prison sentence. Yeah, and, and it sounds inevitable. It sounds uh, preordained. Yeah, yeah, and all that. But I'm saying at the lowest of the lows, is there a— You know, he talks about in prison how the world shrunk down, but— that even in prison, he's still fighting the fight. He's he's arguing for better meals. Like one of the things about segregation in South African prisons when he first goes in is that if you're black, if you're African, you have to wear shorts and all the other prisoners are wearing trousers. He said, that's bullshit. And he fought against that. And eventually everybody's wearing trousers and he fights for better meals. He continues a kind of fight, even if his oppressors are just the prison guards instead of the South African government. I think that plays into the regret question because I don't think he ever gives anything up. And he says, oh, well, if this is the fight I have to fight, this is the fight I fight here. Yeah. I don't know that he's thinking about the bigger, broader context. But, I mean, I, you lose your mother, you lose a child, all this stuff while you're in prison. And it's, I mean, this goes back to your entire point of you have no choice. You can't fully do both. Right. I, so, I, I so don't think there's a regret in there. Think I think that some men and women are built without that gene. And we need them, and that's how society changes and transforms. And, and I think luck and circumstance and history put certain people in certain places who carry that gene and it expresses themselves and the world changes. So going back to my leadership point of fierce resolve, yeah. that's what he had. It's, it's that gene or that absence of the regret gene. That's right. Even if he can be aware of what he's not experiencing as a result of his choices. I mean, I guess a lot of this is really about choice, and it's a question of whether he ever, would he say he had those choices? I mean, in some sense, yes, but I don't see it. I don't know, but maybe that's just the way we mythologize people. Maybe that's all bullshit. Maybe he thought about all of this, or maybe he had a lot more agency than we give him credit for, and this is just the narrative he writes even in an autobiography. What's sure. really going on in there? I don't know. I don't know. But from the outside looking in, as much as I try to get inside, I, I don't see him as seeing that he had choice. You know? Yeah, fair enough. Next category? Good dreams and bad dreams? I, I I thought about this one a lot, but I eventually went through good dreams, and I think I'm, ta I'm giving the same logic that you just gave. So you see an immense amount of injustice and violence. You sleep in prison for 27 years, but you endure. So you have the ability to compartmentalize and to visualize roses and singing birds at some point, and that allows you to sleep. So the sheer ability to sleep, given all he lived through and all he saw and all he was experiencing, I just have to believe either good dreams or no dreams. I want good dreams, too. For those reasons, I couldn't have put it any better. Yeah. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? Which one would you want to do with Nelson Mandela? So he wasn't, he didn't drink at all. Nope. That doesn't matter that's for this not, category. That's not what this is about. What did you go with? I'm dying to hear what you went with. Are you? Oh, yeah. I went with the cocktail. You want to have a drink? What kind of did, did you get more specific than that? It's was like it? a stiff martini, stiff. Okay. A very stiff one. I want the loosening. Yeah. I want to know how his mind works, but in a slightly uninhibited way. Like you want to be the observer or you want him to let you in? I want him to let me in, but I don't want him to let me like so much like cannabis in. Yeah. 
I just want the, this is how I envision each minute in front of me or each year in front of me and another martini, sir. <laughs> I just think that that's the vehicle to, to get it from because, you know, he's an orator, yeah. right? Coffee, he's going to orate and give to me. Yeah. So, so I need, I need the loose lips a little bit. And I think I'm feeding off it a lot. I don't think I'm giving much back to the conversation. But yeah, that's what I went with. Well, that's Martini. how I, I mean, that's how I felt. Exactly. I went coffee for basically the same reasons. More, I'm, I want to be the observer. I always seem to go coffee because if I'm excited to be with somebody and I just kind of want, especially if there's intelligence and charisma, I'm, I'm so fascinated by that person that I want my brain to work faster so that I can take it all in. I don't want to get jacked up with Nelson Mandela. I want to be taking as much in from Nelson Mandela. You know, his ability to see humanity, his ability to look at somebody who's pushing him down and to look at a whole class of people pushing him down and still see light in that. So you Fuck, don't, you I don't struggle want- with that. Don't you look at the injustices of the world and put people in a certain category and say, I'm not sure we can all be saved. He had an ability to believe, a faith in humanity that uh, I, I, I wish I had. That's the single most desirable thing about it. And I, and I don't know how to get there other than learning by example. And I, I can't think of a much better example. I mean, we talked about Gandhi and, and, and Martin Luther King. There's something about his experience that I also relate to. The idealism is a little bit more real for me with him. So, yeah, I, I the the way he sees hope, I, I want to know how you get there, you know? And, and yeah, I feel like a cup of coffee with him. And so no, do that. Maybe a joint is a better one. I don't know. No, I, don't know. I, th- I think I hear what you're saying. You're saying no weed because— what the, the I don't want to be distracted. Well, you don't want him to be distracted either, Fucking because, right. like you said, you you see a, you you feel like he sees a light. He sees a certain light, and you don't want to add any cloudiness to that. I think that's right. Coffee is the most sober of the three drugs in this category. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're there. Okay. The Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, "I don't want your life." Oh. Love it. Am I going first? I don't know where to begin. I can go first. Thank you. Yeah. And I I always feel like saying this is that we don't know until this moment what we're going to say. Yeah. I need to ask the question, though. Do you want Nelson Mandela's life? Yeah. And I need to tell you that I didn't expect to say what I'm about to say. No. I do not want Nelson Mandela's life. It is, it was a world-changing life. It was a life-saving life for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions possibly. We have no idea what the implication of the future is for that. You know, you talked about making a choice between home life and this kind of hero. You served 27 years in prison. That's, that's one thing that's not the case I'm making, I do not want to be that important. I just do not want to bear that much responsibility. And it's embarrassing to say that. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But it's true. I don't want to be at the very top of the importance pyramid. I'd like to be in the upper echelon of it. But I don't want to be that important to where I have no choices and where it's perceived that I have no agency. Um, God, the irony is so thick. The symbol of freedom, right? Yeah, I admire the the fuck out of the ability to be so laser-focused and endure prison. But I I think it's that simple. I don't want to be that important. I've got to have a little bit bit of a radar to be under and to be private and to emote. So So you're a no. I'm a no. You? I don't have an answer. Talk it out? Yeah. It's hard for me to not begin by saying I don't think it's possible anymore. You know, to be important, I, I, 
life circumstances were not so I've given a lot of agency and a lot of choice in my life, but I don't think I have a cause as obviously virtuous available to me. And even if I did, it's hard to see me throwing myself into it with, with that kind of dedication. I feel like I've already gone too far at age 43, you know, to have this life, right? But but maybe that's not the question. That, yeah, that is not the question. And also, let me say that's not true. Let's say we are invaded by some foreign force yeah. of some sort. So I'm not talking about a country. I'm not talking about a planet. I'm just talking about something. An enemy. Comes, an, an, enemy. an enemy that does not exist and we don't know who it is. Yeah. Comes away and takes away our freedom. And the very first thing they do is take away your kids. And you do not see them again. And you are then given, you are fighting for something. You would dedicate your life to fight for that. Well, so tell, let me tell you this part then, Ahmet. In a previous life, I was a climate scientist. Yeah. That is that enemy for me sometimes. Global warming. And you talk about it taking away my kid's life? Fucking A. I feel like that's happening. And instead of, I don't know how, what to do with that, though. I don't know where the protest is. I don't know where the fight is. So instead, I'm here talking with you, dead celebrities. <laughs> I, I, there's, there's a part of me that absolutely wants to be important, but also, you're, you're right. I don't want the responsibility of it either. And you can't have it both ways. His life demonstrates that. This comes with consequences. Right, you want to you want to save the world, you want to save a country, then you got to set aside this family thing, and you you might have some great friends along the way. I think Nelson Mandela did. We didn't talk about it, but he was close with people. Uh, do I want to be that important? Yeah, part of me does, man. Part of me does, and and if you're if you're arguing that that's still available to me, that I could be that important, I don't want to be a chicken shit. I don't want to be afraid. I don't know that I have the fortitude. I don't definitely don't have the fortitude to go to jail for 27 years and 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 lose a third of my 95 year <laughs> life or more. I don't see how I can say no here, though. I, if 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 I am given if I am given the choice to say yes to this life or not, I'll go yes. It's good, and you know the future is not written, right? Whatever your whatever that cause is. And you're on a pretty damn good start of, of a family life, right? Yeah. Uh, there's nothing to say that in the future it can't both be done. It could be in some version. But that's Michael a rationalization. I mean, that passage that I read earlier, you know, where he's talking about like this, the, the choices before me, they didn't exist. I feel like that's kind of where... That's where it goes if you want to change the world, right? At some point, at some point, this comes at a cost. So who is who is Michael the climate scientist hero? What does that look like? Yeah. That, what, what would that life have looked like? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question, Ahmed. I, 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 and I'm not even sure that's the right cause, right? Mm -hmm. um, but let's pretend for a second it is. I think it's one of sacrifice. It's one where your behavior and all your actions symbolize and are consistent with a certain moral value. That if you are a freedom fighter on the outside, then you go to prison and you're a freedom fighter in there. And that the, the responsibility that you bear, you, it, it informs every decision you make. There's no choice around that. And that, that's not where I'm at with climate or with any other cause. Uh, you know, I, I rationalize my way to a fair amount of laziness. I don't think I have what it takes to be Nelson Mandela, which, you know, I can make peace with that you know, after this conversation. But if I, if there's a deathbed moment where you're looking back and say, what does it all mean? Did I do right? I want to have full self-awareness of all the sacrifices that were made along the way and still, and and Landon, I, I, I'm sorry for how many people I hurt. I think it was the right thing to do because I think that there's a, a spiritual enrichment somewhere in the middle of all of that, that, that is maybe what the whole fucking point is. I guess. I don't know. It's not a confident yes. <laughs> no, but it's a yes. Listen, I, I don't like that I'm not a yes. I mean, I still- I, And I, I'm wondering I wanna, how honest I'm being with myself. I want to live for a cause or a purpose, and I want to know so absolutely, resolutely what that is. I do not know. I don't want to be as important as Nelson Mandela was to that particular cause. But I don't want that either for my ego. I mean, you know. Yeah. I, I worry about that. I just, I'm not that unshakable. I am not capable of being that unshakable. Any version of my soul, yeah. I don't think is capable of being that unshakable. That's fine, but don't you wish you were? Yes. 
So isn't that desirable? No. I have to sit with that. I think we've arrived. I think we're at the pearly gates. Oh, we've gone up. Feels like this can be pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Are we? Yeah. Michael. Yeah. You do the pearly gates. Really don't feel like I have a lot to say here, St. Peter. Feel like what I did speaks for itself. I'm Nelson Mandela. And if we're going to have a long conversation about this, then I misjudged the situation. (laughs) (laughs) Let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really does help new listeners to find the show. We would love to see you on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We've got lots of fun stuff there on our Twitter feed. Also, please sign up for our newsletter on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks also to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.